Hello, my name is John McGowan and welcome to Discussions in Tunbridge Wells, the podcast produced by the Salomon Centre for Applied Psychology in Kent. Today I'm joined by our usual panel of Angela Gilchrist. Hello John. Also joined by the recently named BPS, British Psychological Practitioner of the Year no less, Anne Cook. Hello. And finally, uh, not boasting quite such an honorific, but making up for it in searching intellectual rigour, uh, Rachel Terry. Hello. We're also very pleased to have a guest panellist today, uh, our colleague Emma Rye, who is a clinical psychologist working in learning disabilities in nearby Kent and Medway Trust. And we have a specific reason for asking you, Emma, which is that you're currently training as something called a responsible clinician under the Mental Health Act. Now, we'll say more about that in a little while, but that's a clue to what today's podcast is about. Is that correct? Have I, have I nailed that? That's great. That's yeah. great. I'm going to go in the training and have quite mixed feelings about it, I guess would be reasonable to say. Well, that sounds like it's, you're quite exactly the right person to have on, because if there's something that this raises, it's quite strong and conflicted feelings. So our theme today is circumstances where people in the mental health system in particular are treated against their will or without their consent. I think we seem to be struggling to keep the Prime Minister out of her deliberations and she has very obligingly popped up mentioning the Mental Health Act in the last week. One of the very, very few things that she is mentioning specifically other than strength and stability. Um, But she has said in an interview with the Sunday Times that she would, end quote, rip up the Mental Health Act, possibly literally, possibly on TV as a show of strength, possibly not as a show of stability, I'm not sure. But at this point, I'm just going to ask you, Rachel, if you could just initially we just walk us through the territory of what the frameworks are what, what we're talking about the legislative framework that we're dealing with here okay well there's two sort of main frameworks firstly the mental capacity act 2005 um, which is related to people that are deemed to be unable to make some or all decisions for themselves due to an impairment or disturbance of the functioning of their mind or brain and in that instance it is meant to be taken on decision by decision by um basis if people are deemed not to have capacity then we would be making decisions based on what is deemed to be in their best interests we also have the mental health act 1983 which was updated in 2007 which is specifically related to mental disorder is what it's known as in the act that is a law which sets out when you can be admitted and detained and treated in hospital against your wishes um, and is often referred to as being sectioned you know that that's the territory as i understand it but i wonder if we could first of all just turn to you Emma, you're training under the the Mental Health Act, and this has been something that's been available to psychologists really, I think, technically since 2007. Though not not many psychologists have decided to train to take up those powers. Could you say a little bit more about your journey along to that point? Yes, that's right. That not very many people have taken up the opportunity. Uh, I think far fewer than was hoped for when the uh, legislation or the amendments, the uh, 1984 legislation, was passed. And I think that's probably for the the reasons I alluded to earlier in terms of ambivalence that not just psychologists but the other professions that could, or potentially could take up this role, um, so nurses and um, occupational therapists. Uh, um, 
and probably the reason for that is around ambivalence around power and what it might mean to have the power to detain somebody or keep somebody detained against their will. The, I know that that's been something where there have been quite strong feelings. I know you were involved in a little bit of research a couple of years ago, Anne, weren't you, about psychologists feeling specifically about taking up those those powers? Yes, we interviewed psychologists about their feelings about training as a responsible clinician. We were interested in the reasons that so few have trained, like you were saying. Um, I was also part of a debate, a British Psychological Society debate about the same thing a few years previously. And it was really interesting what people said about their uh, reasons for and against. And one of the main reasons people gave for not wanting to train as a responsible clinician was the current system. And in particular, the assumptions that underlie the current system that uh, there are things called mental illnesses that afflict people and that affect their ability to reason and make decisions and that one of the symptoms of mental illness is lack of insight uh, and that therefore people need to be treated and by treatment we mean medication, psychiatric medication generally and that that can be given to people against their will if necessary by forced injection and that's the kind of guiding idea or assumption behind the current system which was cited by many psychologists as one that they didn't agree with and therefore uh, they weren't prepared to apply for particular powers within the current system. I wonder if uh, one of the things I did in preparation for this over the last few weeks is uh, interviewed a number of people and one of the people I interviewed was a a relatively local psychiatrist, Matthew Debenham, uh, who I worked with many moons ago and found him actually to be somebody who used these powers very sparingly, actually was in some ways I think genuinely quite reluctant to use these powers. But I I talked to him um, a few weeks ago, he's obviously a psychiatrist psychiatrist and these are the people who have been utilising the Mental Health Act, particularly the main people who operate that that legislation. And I wonder if it would be worth just going to that interview now and we can discuss perhaps some of the things come you know coming out of that when we've heard when we've heard what he said about the process. It's quite a long interview about Ooh, in excess of 20 minutes but I do think it's quite interesting to really hear in detail how somebody operating that legislation may think about it and go about it. Okay I'm here with Dr Matthew Debenham a psychiatrist and it seemed like a very good starting point to talk about the whole notion of compulsory powers. Hello Matthew. Hello. Um, just to kick us off, could you describe um, for us a bit just your current your your current role? Just give us a little bit of context on your current role. I know you work in Kent, but could you say a bit more beyond that? Um, yeah, I'm um, a consultant psychiatrist working in acute mental health services in Kent, um, and I'm consultant for a ward at Priority House Hospital in Maidstone. Mm-hmm. I I worked with you a number of years ago. And I had a background in working as a psychologist in wards, but you were one of the consultants that I worked with. And obviously something that arises in those contexts is, is the question of sometimes when people are either brought into hospital or treated without their consent or against their will. Could you give us some kind of back, some kind of idea of the circumstances where a decision like that might be taken or where you might think about a decision like that? Um, Often the decision to treat someone against their will is going to be based on risk. So that what that means is the risk of not treating a person must be 
so great that the uh, compulsory treatment in hospital is is justified and that's going to be justified um, in terms of risk to the person themselves and to other people. Um, what kind of legislation then is involved? Um, I know there's the there's, there's legal frameworks around capacity, but also around mental health. Could you give us some idea of the main kind of differences between those frameworks? The Mental Health Act predates the Capacity Act, and the Capacity Act puts into law practice that was already in place but structures it in a more uh, in, in, a, in a clearer legal framework. The Mental Health Act applies to the treatment of mental conditions and extends to the, um, the manifestations of that so that could include um, treatment for a physical condition as long as it is either a symptom or manifestation of mental illness but it is limited to the treatment of a mental condition. Um, So the Mental Health Act is the legislation that's more commonly applied to compulsory treatment in a psychiatric hospital but not exclusively. The Capacity Act includes the deprivation of liberty safeguards and uh, also guidance around making best interest decisions. Um, The Mental Health Act allows for treatment in hospital combined with a uh, restriction in liberty, which means that a person can be required to remain in hospital while they have that treatment, um, and the time that they spend away from hospital is um, agreed and decided by the uh, responsible clinician. Deprivation of liberty safeguards also allow a person who lacks capacity to make a decision about where they're treated to be held in hospital. Um, but it doesn't allow for treatment so that if somebody lacks capacity to make those treatment choices and they are not um, falling under the Mental Health Act, then a best interest decision will be made about treatment, which is essentially where interested people, which includes professional professionals, families and carer, would make a decision about what that person would have decided had they had capacity and been able to make that decision for themselves. So I think that probably summarises it. Well, I mean, that that idea of capacity, I I, I certainly know that it occasionally came in in working, you know, where I worked with you, who's brought the more adult-focused services. It sometimes came into play, and it it was relatively clear to me the whole idea of somebody lacks the capacity to make a decision and things, you know, come into play in best interest. It it, it did come up more for me in periods that I spent working in, for example, older people services, where you're looking at greater prevalences of our you know, organic problems, I guess, like dementias and things like that. But just I'm wondering if we could just parse just parse out a little bit more of the difference. I, I I'm sort of very clear on that, but I wonder if people might not be quite as clear about the the basis of a decision under the Mental Health Act, where somebody you know maybe broadly perceived to have capacity, but there's another right. legal framework yeah. that can come in ahead of yeah. ahead of that. Yeah, that um that that is an important distinction. Um. The Mental Health Act does allow for treatment against a person's own decision-making or against their will, where the best interest decision is really trying to make a decision that is in line with the decision they would have wanted to make for themselves mm-hmm. if they'd been able to, and I think that's a really important difference. There is clearly an overlap 
because there may be people who have a mental condition that has an impact on their ability to make decisions for themselves. So they may lack capacity and also be mentally unwell at at the time. And if either could apply, then what we'd generally go for in a psychiatric hospital setting is the use of the Mental Health Act. And what that does mean is that even if a person is able to make a decision for themselves about treatment and is refusing that treatment, we still under the Mental Health Act, at least while they're in hospital, have the power to enforce that treatment. I mean, one of the things that often struck me having worked with you Somewhat. I mean, I should say that actually when I worked on a ward where you were a consultant, I didn't actually do all that much work with you, partly because I think your emphasis was on trying to move people through hospital in a, in a relatively expedient and, and quick way. I think for very good reason was always my feeling. Uh, people didn't particularly want people to linger in hospital unless it was absolutely, you know, it was absolutely merited and, and necessary. But I, I, it did strike me that you were actually pretty thoughtful about the application of the Mental Health Act and what might be the more aversive consequences of, of, of doing that. Could you give an idea just in your decision making of how you balance the, the needs versus the negative, the negative consequences as part, yeah. of, as part of the decision? So um, the question that I was thinking about in the previous answer was about what the powers are. There's then a question that has to be asked, and in practice we all need to ask it of ourselves, is whether a power that we can apply should be applied. And that's the the balance between the benefit of treating somebody uh, in hospital, because the Mental Health Act is largely about hospital treatment, against the disadvantages of treating somebody in hospital. And it may be that there is risk associated with a person and the condition that they're being treated for and that risk may remain whether or not they're in hospital and whether or not they have treatment that's available in hospital. So the way I would think about it is that if they have a condition associated with risk and that there is something we can do for them in hospital by treating them that will mean that risk is reduced so that when they leave hospital there has been a benefit both in terms of their mental well-being and reduction in risk then we should hold them in hospital and use the powers of the Mental Health Act. But if on the other hand keeping a person in hospital either makes no difference or worse makes things more unsafe and contributes to their difficulty in managing life outside of hospital, then although the power to use the Mental Health Act may be there, it might not be the right thing to do. I mean, this, I think, is a very interesting point. And one of the things I said to you before we started is this idea that sometimes when you hear people speak, especially if there's been a serious incident or a suicide or a violent incident, that you sometimes hear people saying, oh, well, the problem is they didn't get the treatment that they needed in hospital. But in some sense, what you're saying is that actually hospital may not always be, no matter how good we make it, may not always be as good as people would like to think or be able to help in the way that people might might envisage. Yeah. It may not always be helpful, yeah. basically. Yeah. yeah, I think that's right. There's, I think, 
two misconceptions about hospital. The first is that it is always the safer place to be. And the second is that because it's a hospital, there must be treatment available in hospital. And that if there is treatment available in hospital, that a person would leave hospital in a better state than they were when they came in. And sometimes that's true. But in cases where it's not, then that would be coming back to the occasions when it might not be the right thing to treat someone in hospital. So as as a, as a kind of example of where that might be the case, I, I suppose, well, it's really thinking about what kinds of treatment we do have in hospital. We're quite good at using medication in hospital, and that's um, important for conditions that respond well to treatment with medication. And it may be that it's worthwhile keeping in hospital so keeping someone in hospital for the time it takes for that medication to begin having an effect because then the expectation is that they will leave in a better state than they came in but some conditions are not responsive to medication and often those are conditions where the best treatment is psychological treatments but those treatments first of all take time secondly they really need to be done in a setting that is most conducive to to benefiting from those treatments. And often an acute hospital where the period of treatment is often quite short and where those resources are not concentrated and where the environment is quite disturbed and where there's a mixed population of uh, patients so that it's very difficult to create an environment where they're likely to respond well to that kind of treatment, that being in an acute hospital at least may not be the right place for them. So that is the lack of benefit a person's likely to derive from being in hospital. The second thing we then need to think about is what harm might the person come to while they're in hospital waiting for a treatment that's not available. And for a lot of people, they come into hospital because they are struggling with things that are going on in their life at the time. And often those things are not to do with mental illness or mental disorder. They might be to do with relationship difficulties, housing difficulties, problems at work, or a a whole variety of personal problems that mean because a person cannot find a way to cope with those difficulties, they come to mental health services in distress they are sometimes brought into hospital that gives them a temporary respite from what's going on in their life although it's still there in the background and unchanged by being in hospital and what can happen over time is that first of all being in that hospital environment where they have a temporary respite from the crisis that's happening in their lives does give that temporary relief but at the same time they do have to leave because it's not a permanent placement and when they leave they struggle with the fact that they've lost what felt like a protected environment and that for a lot of people means that they struggle even more than they had been before in coping with the things that have not changed while they were in hospital and so what people then find is an escalation in the distress as they leave they feel the need to come back but the gateway to coming back can for a lot of people be raises the concern of professionals to a level that those professionals think they should come back in and what in reality that means for many people is doing things that place themselves 
at risk because that's what professionals respond to. And I'm not I'm not thinking for most people that that's a conscious and deliberate decision. But where there is that increase in distress because they are not coping and because they've had to leave hospital, that becomes the natural thing for them to do. So that so that by keeping them and actually deciding that they should come in in the first place, what we're really deciding at the same time is that we will create a difficult period for them at the point where they need to leave. And that's compounded by the fact that by having someone in hospital, there's an element of a nurturing environment, which is then removed from them. And that creates a sense of rejection and um, and, and loss. And, uh, and so there the then becomes a reaction to that as well. I think that if by keeping someone in a hospital setting, we're offering something that helps them. Those are all, uh, all of those worrying aspects of things that can be uh, coped with and, and, and offset the benefit of treatment they're receiving. But if actually we're not able to offer any treatment, then it just becomes a negative experience. Well, I mean, that's very resonant, actually, what you're saying. I mean, sometimes people, I guess, feel um you know safe safe in hospital and are attracted back there uh, uh, one of my own experiences was that sometimes even when people in a conscious way found it you know quite aversive being there that there was may sometimes be a part of them that could come to depend upon it in a very unhelpful way or a way that did not help support yeah. Yeah. their recovery yeah really yeah um a few, a few more uh, questions just before we finish it from me, and actually I asked a couple of my colleagues who who present the podcast with me. Um, what one of them was, I suppose, for me was I, I worked in um, acute uh, mental health wards for a number of years, and I worked with a number quite closely with a number of different consultant psychiatrists, and they were all different. They were all absolutely different in the way that they related to and applied this these these kind of legislative frameworks. Are, are there ways of trying to make that consistent? Are there mechanisms within the system that try to improve the consistency of, of that? People had different considerations, different anxiety thresholds, different views and beliefs in the efficacy of hospital. Um, how, do, how does that system become consistent or, do, or does it not? Um, I, I don't think it's ever possible for it to be completely consistent because the practice of different individuals is is going to be different and it also depends on how how a team functions and how supportive a team is about making uh, risk decisions. And one of the things that I think is really important for any clinician making those uh, what can be quite difficult choices is how well supported they feel by the team that's around them. And I think that what's really very important in that is first of all having um, a consistent understanding about how different conditions and it's particularly around the management of personality disorders that uh, some of these uh, uh, that people that people struggle with with making this kind of decision where consistency is most challenging that uh, so, and, and there are things that we can do so as, as an example one of the um, initiatives that we are starting in Kent is training to award staff by um, the uh, um, newly appointed medical psychotherapist uh, who's leading on uh, personality disorders in the county and he'll be going around to all of the wards and, um, and doing 
te- teaching sessions, trying to um, generate a, a common understanding of how to manage that kind of uh, risk. Um, the other thing I think that's important is the services that sit around the, the hospital uh, wards. Um, what, what I've seen is that one of the causes behind, uh, or one of the um, the underlying reasons behind uh, inconsistency, is when people will make an assessment, um, have an understanding about what they think is probably the right thing to do but feel unable to act on that because they don't have any any alternative treatment. So what I'm thinking about here is someone who might present in crisis. A decision might need to be made about whether they should come into a hospital or not. Often when they do come into hospital, that will be detained under the Mental Health Act because they are saying that they don't want to come into hospital. And the clinicians involved in making those decisions don't necessarily think that being in hospital is the right thing, but because there aren't any alternative treatment options for them to offer that person in the community, they feel that they must bring him to hospital, even though they know it's probably not the most helpful thing to do. Well, that relates to a question from one of my colleagues um, about people sometimes staying on section. There's a colleague of mine who worked a lot in forensic services staying on section because they're deemed to continue to be at risk or there's just not a suitable place to refer them in the community I mean I guess that's quite a tough dilemma it does that does that happen people staying detained even when they're not unwell enough technically just because there's nothing else yeah very much so and um and I think it's about um an understanding of how to manage risk and where that uh, risk uh, comes from, because for a lot of people, the risk is intrinsic to the, to them and the condition they have, and it remains whether they're in hospital or not. For other people, it's very much a risk that is linked to a treatable condition, and that's that's really coming back to the answers uh, right at the beginning of, of of our conversation, because if by treating someone in a Um, using a treatment that's available to us in hospital, we can change what's going on for that person in a way that benefits them, then it's a useful thing to uh, hold them in hospital for the time it takes for that to happen. But if regardless of what we do, the risk is there and doesn't change, then we have to be thinking about how we manage the treatment of that person knowing that that risk is there rather than what do we do while they're in hospital to remove that risk because we already know that that's not going to happen. And if the purpose behind holding a person is to keep them until the risk has changed but we know that risk will not change, then we will never allow, we will never allow them to leave hospital. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and what that means for someone is that if the um, if if improvement in their condition and the way that they manage with the difficulties in their lives can only happen outside of hospital, and for a lot of people that's true because uh, that's where the difficulties lie and that's where the change needs to happen, then by keeping them in hospital, we are condemning them to never improving and never getting better. Um, but also because they cannot better get better, we cannot let them leave either. So it's so it's a it's a really nasty trap that we put ourselves into where we're focusing entirely on risk but not on what needs to happen for that person to improve. Well I've got a couple of other quick questions uh, which came from one of my colleagues. Um, My colleague Anne 
wanted me to ask you, do you think we need the Mental Health Act as well as capacity-based legislation? I mean, personally, I don't think it's going anywhere, but yeah. do you think we need it or could we just have capacity-based? Uh, we could, yeah. That, that's that's an interesting question because I, I think that if we'd started with the Capacity Act, we probably might not have needed a Mental Health Act, but the history of the Mental Health Act goes back a, a, a long way to, to um, more, more than 100 years. I, I think that... It does. The, the existence of the Mental Health Act does mean that we need to be quite careful in the application of the Capacity Act because potentially we could uh, look at capacity in uh, relation to mental disorders and say that either because of the distortion in the way that a person perceives their own illness that there is an impact on their ability to make informed decisions so that in a very broad sense anyone who's detained under the Mental Health Act could be understood to lack capacity and so that the deprivation of liberty could uh, fall under the deprivation of liberty safeguards and the treatment can come under best interest. I I think that one of the advantages of the Mental Health Act and why it's important that we, uh, we continue to keep it alive is that there is greater protection uh, for the, the person receiving treatment. That comes in the form of, uh, of tribunals and, um, and hospital managers' hearings, and that allows a person to have legal representation to present their case to an independent panel who can discharge the section if they don't think that the, um, the clinicians uh, involved in in treating are, are are right in their view about uh, detention, and one of the things that's changed in the uh, in recent years is that there, the burden of proof now lies with the uh, the treating body rather than the mm-hmm. the person themselves, and what that means is that the evidence presented to that tribunal by the professionals has to be persuasive enough that they can demonstrate that detention on the Mental Health Act is is absolutely necessary. Um, and those protections are not there uh, in, in the Capacity Act. The, what, the final question I had for you, I think I probably know your answer to this, given what you've, what you've already said, is, you know, do you think that somebody has the right to take their own life or should people, when they're suicidal, always be detained under section if they refuse treatment? Yeah. I think people do have the right to take their own lives. I think that's something that creates a lot of anxiety for professionals because I think there's, there's, it creates a professional anxiety, the sort of sense that um, that they may be held to to blame as opposed to accountable, which are different things. We are all accountable, but that doesn't necessarily mean uh, to blame. But also that people feel personally responsible for the people that uh, that they are looking after and nobody nobody wants to be uh, wants to see someone that they have a connection with and feel personally and professionally responsible for um, killing themselves and that that always feels like a, a failure when that happens so so I think there's there's quite powerful reasons why people worry about uh, about um, the decision someone may, may make to take their own lives. Um, one of the things that we have to bear in mind is that a lot of people who do kill themselves have no mental disorder and no mental illness, and it may be um, a very rational decision for somebody 
to make. But where I think we have a very clear responsibility to prevent suicide is where that decision comes about as a result of their mental disorder, and particularly where it's a mental disorder that we could, by treatment and intervention, change the way that they feel about their own lives. And that's why, for example, where someone might be very depressed, maybe thinking about suicide in the context of that depression, uh, but that's a treatment, a treatable disorder, and that if we hold them in hospital for long enough to treat the depression so that their mood improves, they no longer have those thoughts about suicide. And that's, that's a very clear example of where detention under the mental health, that would be the right thing to do. You're listening to Discussions in Tunbridge Wells, the podcast from the Salomon Centre for Applied Psychology. I thought it was really interesting the way that he made the distinction that I was just talking about uh, between people, this is was my interpretation of what he said anyway, he talked about people who had mental illnesses that we can treat in hospital and by which, by which he generally I think meant we can medicate people um, and that for them hospital can be useful and therefore they should be sectioned and then he was distinguishing that group from other people he said had social problems and shouldn't be in hospital and at one point he referred to them as having personality disorders and he was say- he seemed to be saying anyway that those people should not be admitted to hospital and in fact didn't I well, he said that the problems that they needed to address were outside of outside of hospital and seemed to imply possibly that mental health services didn't really have much of a role in helping those people, although I could have got that role. Well, I understood him to actually be saying that he felt that mental health services maybe, though maybe this is coloured by my other knowledge of his working practices, that he found a hospital and aspects of the mental health system to be actively unhelpful. Yes to those people so what did the rest of you think well, about what I, he, he I said found it, I suppose heartening that he was at least pointing to some of the dangers of keeping people in hospital unnecessarily um, and also the dangers of, of what can happen when people are hospitalised especially for protracted periods of time that they actually lose their own power as, as a consequence of doing that However, what was disappointing about it was that he doesn't actually question the basis on which responsible clinicians can currently commit people to, de- to detention. Well, he, was, he was certainly coming to it from a perspective of uh, illness-based, though I, I was quite interested in his remark that perhaps he felt, I mean this is maybe one for slightly later in the discussion, that we could think about it purely in terms of capacity. But I'm just keeping what we've got Emma here just to get your reactions to that and also again just thinking about, you know, you're you're somebody who, you know, not unambivalently from the mm-hmm. sounds of it, is thinking about picking up these is thinking about picking up these kind of kind of powers. So mm-hmm. what did you make of what he said and how does it relate to your own journey into this? I mean I thought what was really helpful was his t- talking about the difference between the short term rest and the medium to longer term rest. All that kind of came up in the conversation between mm-hmm. the two of you. In terms of at the point of sectioning the focus is on the immediate risks to the person themselves and, and the people around them. But at that time a 
maybe that, that there also needs to be thought given to the longer term risks for that person's mental health and ability to engage in mental health services that might be able to help them if they are compulsory detained in that it might be such an aversive experience that it makes it much more difficult for that person to seek um, mental health um, services in a, in a more helpful way in the future. Mm-hmm. It tied in very much for me, I don't know if you've had a chance to look at that recent article from the British Journal of Psychiatry that I sent around, I think via Twitter, that actually did some research trying to establish cause in terms of admission to mental health hospital and suicide because we know obviously that there is an association between suicide and being an inpatient in a psychiatric hospital but they use obviously you can't do an experiment you can't force some people and let some people kill themselves but they used an accepted method of determining cause for things where that's not possible for example it was used in determining that so uh, the contribution of smoking to cancer and seemed to be and, and concluded that it that there is good evidence that psychiatric hospital admission contributes to causally contributes to suicide which given that it's our main answer to suicide sort of suicidality and a perceived risk of suicide I thought was a staggering finding and this is only in the last couple of weeks well in some ways it, it bears out what we were saying in the la- the last time we gathered for this discussion which was about the emphasis on just managing, you know, sitting on, squashing down, holding risk in the here and now. And I think all of us were questioning the degree to which that was necessarily helpful to somebody in a in a in a bigger picture. And we do have a couple of other interviews with service users who have been to different extent subject to compulsory press which we'll go to a little bit later that you know I do think also bear that out from a you know a more subjective stance but that's a system Emma that you're getting in, involved in so what's what's your motive for I think I mean I think one thing that's important to say is at this stage it is not possible for non-medic responsible clinicians to actually do the initial sectioning so within the 2007 amendment as it stands a responsible clinician who's not a medic can only take that position from when the person's initially been sectioned and that might seem like a fudging of that initial sectioning um, or the responsibility for that initial sectioning but that, that's how the legal powers stand currently. Once somebody has been sectioned then I think, it, and bearing in mind I work with people with disabilities, that it's incumbent on the system to really look at ensuring that person has the treatment, and I mean that in the widest sense, not just medication or drugs, um, but psychological treatment and uh, I think probably more importantly the whole nursing milieu on the ward which can actually be quite, quite therapeutic for some of the people that I work with who've had very traumatic um, backgrounds, childhoods of trauma and um, lack of nurturing and whilst we may see um, a lot of acute wards as not feeling like therapeutic places at all, I think some are some wards that have been set up for people with learning disabilities when they've been set up well and are managed well and we know there are lots of examples that where that's not the case then um, they can actually have a beneficial effect in helping somebody uh, develop 
better attachments and think about how they might rebuild their lives in the community upon discharge. And so as a responsible clinician, I would see the role of a non-medic to be really uh, emphasising the importance of those non-medical, non-medicine, non-drug treatments on the ward. Can I ask you a question then? Why are they called wards if they're not offering medical treatment? Um, I'm thinking of, for example, Peter Kinderman's book where he suggested taking mental health care completely out of the health system, out of hospitals and having social care centres or crisis houses. I've written about crisis houses. Why call them wards? Why have a medical term at all? I completely agree. I completely agree. I, I think there's something about the, the it being locked. I agree. Calling it a ward doesn't feel helpful. And making it look like a ward doesn't feel helpful either. Um, so I would say that's the un, unhelpful bit of, of um, the detention. But something about, yes, to call it something else, but there's something about it being locked that, that gives the literal containment for somebody who's very uncontained and who finds it very difficult to separate from that traumatic community from which they've come as in the, the, the family and um, local community that's, that's created the trauma, there's something about the need to, to have that lock as a physical containment as well as the psychological containment. But I absolutely agree about the, the, the use of the word ward and the look of a ward. But and unfortunately, I think it's the reality that sometimes some people probably do need some kind of support or treatment against their wishes. So there is a need for some kind of legislation and protection. I mean understandably it's extremely traumatic to have to go into hospital when you don't want to I think there is always going to be cases where that is needed and as was said earlier I personally think we are part of if we're working on inpatient wards which I have done we are part of the system whether we like it or not and we're seen as a member of the team that is keeping somebody in hospital so therefore I think it is important that we put ourselves in positions to be in um, making those decisions rather than just going along with them, which I think is what we're seen to be doing currently. I, th I think for me, while I can understand that there's an argument for being in rather than out, it's not something that I would personally be willing to get involved with, insofar as I think that the whole basis of the legislation is faulty at this moment in time. I think it would be a major step forward if the Mental Health Act were one that was based on capacity rather than the, the kind of somewhat arbitrary judgments that it can be made mm. upon at the moment. That would be a major step forward. It doesn't mean that everything would be honky-dory. In fact, it would be interesting to see whether detentions uh, lowered in number as a consequence. They may not but at least it would have a more just premise to it. Well, I wonder if that might be a very good moment to go to an interview that we did with uh, Ray Waddingham, who's a, quite a well-known service user activist, and it really describes this notion of being detained in hospital against your decision. You know, you have the capacity to make the decision, but the system is, is going over uh, the system is overriding your will. So let's hear that again. There's there's quite a lot in this interview, but it, it, it's an interesting story. And thinking about it in contrast to what Matthew Debenham said, it does is a very timely reminder about some of the potentially very, or in line with what Matthew Debenham said, actually, uh, some of the potentially very negative consequences of having decisions overridden in quite in quite that way and how potentially unhelpful that might be. 
Okay, I'm here with uh, Rachel Waddingham, uh, usually known as Ray Waddingham, and I was very interested uh, to talk to Ray. Well, actually, I think I'll pass over. Uh, I think I'll pass over to you uh, to just sort of set set this up because I think you have some experiences which uh, do seem very very relevant to the point at hand. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself first of all? Sure. Um, so I struggled during my 20s a lot with experiences like hearing voices, having visions, unusual beliefs that led to me being hospitalised for quite a few years under section at some points in that journey. Um, since kind of finding a way through that with the Hearing Voices Network, I now work as a trainer and consultant internationally, really trying to change the way that we see and respond to those kind of experiences. Um, I also at the moment work in the NHS in Canterbury as part of the Open Dialogue Service. So it's kind of interesting to go back into the system from a completely different angle. And I think that just mentioning the system, one of the reasons I was interested to talk to you as well as having been interested in and admire of your work for for uh, some time is that you have also had experiences of being detained in hospital under compulsory legal powers. Could you tell us a little bit more about, about that? Sure. So when I first went into hospital, I think it was Oh, it's the end of 1998, so it's a while ago now. Um, I went in as a voluntary patient, so I was admitted informally. It's a kind of funny word, voluntary patient, because it's not like I felt like I had a choice. It was more come into hospital. And you just don't argue with doctors, especially when you're distressed and your family's distressed. But I was first sectioned, I think, when I decided I didn't want to be in hospital anymore. So I decided I wanted to leave. And I didn't know sectioning even existed. It was a, a bit of a shock to me for me to go, right, I'm, I'm leaving. I need to get out of here now. This isn't OK. And then to have the nurses put me under a 5-2 or 5-4, whatever it's called, kind of an emergency hold, and then get doctors to come in and see me. Mm-hmm. Um, Just for it was people really who are, weird. So, pardon me, for those people who aren't mm. familiar with those five twos and five fours, are subsections of the Mental Health Act under which people are are detained. Yeah, mm, that's it. So, I mean, those kind of short term holds happen quite frequently in the years that I was in and out of hospital. It'd usually be that I'd go in voluntarily and then freak out, either decide I wanted to leave because I didn't feel I was getting much help, or I was struggling so much with the voices or so much with this fear that the the alien I thought that was inside me was going to make me kill people that I just legged it from the hospital. I'd wait for a, a moment where no one was looking and I'd try to get out and start running and usually there'd be a nurse running after me and then they'd put me on one of these holds. So often it happened at a point of crisis and occasionally it happened when I said, you know what, I'd want to get out of here. They were the two kind of main ways of me getting sections. And the whole experience, uh, leaving aside for a moment the, the motives of for keeping you in hospital against your against your expressed will, given the state that you were in, but even without that, the whole experience sounds pretty terrifying, really. I think so. I mean, the idea that someone can forcibly keep you somewhere you don't want to be whatever the reason and that at that point when you're given a little bit of paper you're under section you have to get a form signed if you even want to go out for a walk on the grounds with your family that just was it was like going into another zone I didn't know you were it was legal to do that um it certainly wasn't what I was expecting when I was first admitted um it kind of the the more coercion that was used for me, I think the more I railed against it and wanted and obsessed actually about getting out and spent more time trying to think about how to get out of hospital 
than work on the experiences that had led me in there in the first place. So in one way, it felt like a distraction from some of the the treatment that you were having and a very dominating, uh, a very dominating thought. Yeah, I think so. But also something about despite those sort of sections and hospital admissions and stuff like that, it felt like it only reached those crisis points where I tried to get out of hospital because the support I got when I was in hospital didn't hold me it wasn't as therapeutic as as I'd have liked I felt very isolated with my with my voices and with my my fears and so it the kind of concerns and the worries and everything would build up to the point where I just needed to get out of there but then no one had listened to me and it get worse and worse and then I'd run and then I got sectioned so it's kind of like a knee-jerk response to what's seen as a very confused distressed young woman but they missed the run-up to it so it does sound as if one of the the primary experiences you've taken away from that is that the response could have been how can I put this more more creative to to you so. in that in that setting rather than it, the feeling of jumping to jumping to holding you in when something had got very very out of hand. That's it. So I can understand that while I'm legging it through the corridors, the nurse that catches me has no other option but to place me under a section because you can't stop someone from leaving the hospital legally without sectioning them. But that it even got to that point is the worrying thing because there were so many other ways that could have gone. As I said, I came into hospital voluntarily and I think if, even though I was very paranoid and very afraid of staff, if they'd have had some more time and resources to just sit with me and get to know me a bit better, then those kind of situations wouldn't have happened so often. It's something, uh, the just thinking about the where the experience left you and where the experience ended up. I've spoken to a number of people um, all over the years, but also particularly in the preparation of this particular podcast, and they seem to have landed in very different places with the experience of having been detained. Some of them are really, really clear that it was, it, it felt distressing. And in retrospect, it was really, you know, did them no, really did them no good. Quite the contrary. Some seem to be in a position of saying that while it was clearly distressing and there was clearly in many ways an awful experience, they've, they've kind of landed in a place where they see it as as having been necessary and something that ha- that ultimately made that ultimately made a difference to them when they were not able to make particular decisions for themselves where have you ended up with it because it sounds like you do have a few years of a few years of perspective on it and clearly have thought about it a lot but where have you you ended up with with it in terms of how necessary or otherwise it may have been it's a complicated one isn't it because it's easy for me to sort of sit here and go it's never necessary compulsion coercion we should just get rid of it in the mental health services and i think 98 percent of me really believes that i think having such levels of compulsion in a service that's about health and well-being and and helping people find their way through distress it just doesn't make sense because it sets up a situation where we spend more time running from services than actually engaging with it. So I'm kind of coming out at a more anti-compulsion kind of stance. But I also recognise that we're kind of trapped in this cycle because our services are so reactive and so underforced and probably operating on a paradigm that portrays people like me as, as very unwell and having no 
insight into our, our own stuff and actually kind of perpetuates that by the way we're treated. That if you suddenly got rid of sectioning tomorrow and, and decided not to use it, people wouldn't be safe because we've been in this dance for a long time. So I feel like sectioning is like a systemic ill. It's a systemic problem that the individual players, myself, the ward staff and everyone else, we, we, we don't have much room for manoeuvre. But because it exists, it can almost stop us from looking at what the alternatives could be. Because I think it's a failure when we section people, because it means that somewhere along the line we've missed something, whether it's when there were ch- children reaching out for help at school. Did that get missed? whether it's because people have experienced prejudice and discrimination, whether they've had negative in, sort of interactions with services previously, whether they just don't feel respected when they meet a practitioner. Now, there's, there's something that's gone wonky there, and we need to fix that in order to move away from sectioning. I mean, in some sense, I think also what you're saying is that the, the very availability of sectioning under the Mental Health Act, I'll ask you about other legislation in a second, um, but under the Mental Health Act, it kind of leads us down a path where we're almost, well, what's the old joke, you know, I wouldn't start from here. Mm, that's it. I think it's it's tricky because we, we are stuck in that. So an example of that would be when I was on a section two, right at the end of the section, the ward staff applied for a section three for me and the social worker and the medical representative and all that really agreed that I needed to still be in hospital under a treatment section, which is a six month one. But my parents didn't agree and they didn't realise until then that they had rights as the nearest relative to oppose that section. And luckily they got advice and did oppose it. The, they were under enormous pressure by the social worker to, to agree to the section saying it was the best in my best interest. I'd have more protection legally and all of that. But my parents were like, well, she's complying with treatment. She's doing she's being a good patient. She's saying she'll stay in hospital. Why section her for another six months? Mm-hmm. And the answer was saves paperwork and it's less stress on her. You know, because if she runs off again, we'll have to go through this again. And that's that's why we're doing it. So it felt like a paper saving exercise. Nothing about my really what was really in my best interests. And I ended up being released probably a month later because I was doing a lot better. So the fact that they almost kind of detained me just just in case suggests that it's almost a default if someone's still on the end of a section two and still struggling, you just move it up to the next one. Oh, and that issue of how the legislation is used. I mean, one of the things that's uh, arisen in the interviews I've done for this uh, so far, and I suspect also in the discussion that we have, is is the, the, the underlying principle of the legislation and compulsory powers versus the way that they are employed in practice. I mean, I have to say myself, having worked with a number of consultants and a number of wards over the years, I, I, I've seen wildly varying practices and the degree to which um, the degree to which these things are used, for want of a better word, well, the psychiatrist that I talked to for this uh, for this podcast, he he reckoned this was only his perspective that that kind of thing, you know, checks and balances on decision making. He felt that that had improved over the years because you know there's the principle of it, but also there's the way it's employed and the way that it's uh, you know the way that it can be done, which. You know, as you say, it doesn't sound that you have a very good experience of that either. Um, it's hard to say whether it's actually changed. I think it's such so different in different areas and different teams and about the culture and how many serious incidents there's been recently and all those things that means I don't think we can say it's improved or got worse. It's just fragmented. Mm-hmm. I certainly know of people that have been put on CTOs, community treatment orders, um, on release from hospital 
just in case they stop taking their medication when they've got no history of doing that. And that's a kind of a more recent example. And I think our overuse of the community treatment orders suggests that actually there's still something really problematic in the way this is being implemented. It's certainly not the last-ditch attempt. And I think the idea of finding alternatives to sectioning is, is within the law, but I rarely see workers really fighting to look for alternatives. But one thing I wanted to, to ask you about, I suppose, before finishing, is it's the broader principle. Something that we've talked about quite a lot in our group and in our team is the notion of the Mental Health Act, which makes decisions around the basis of whether you're kind of on of sound mind or not and, you know, trying to look at what people may rightly or wrongly perceive to be your best interest, compared to something like the Mental Capacity Act, where you know, if you've got capacity, you can kind of make the decisions that you like, really. And I just wonder if if you felt that there would be any advantage or disadvantage to grounding, if, if we were to accept that, you know, the decision to treat people sometimes against their will isn't necessarily going anywhere. Would, do you think that might be improved or more humane if it was based on people's capacity to make the decision rather than what other people thought was best for them? It's a tricky one, isn't it? Because I think as long as we have legislation that allows us to give people because if we say treatment that suggests it's a treatment for a particular illness or condition but if we step back from that and go actually what we're doing is medicating people that's what we're talking about which is one particular way of working with distressing experiences but it's only a small part it's rare that you're, tr- you're sectioned into therapy or sectioned into a peer support group not that you ever should be people have um, asked me to treat people under section before and it's always yeah. incredibly weird yeah it, it kind of goes against the whole sort of principle of of people actually opting into those kind of relationships but primarily treatment is seen as a biomedical medication kind of thing so what we're talking about should we look should we take away people's liberty and then should we forcibly medicate them they're the two sort of big parts i guess of sectioning and compulsory treatment and even calling them treatment suggests that they're indicated that that's a good idea so i'd kind of like us to untangle a bit about what we mean by treatment and forced treatment and sectioning Mm -hmm. so that we separate the idea of actually taking someone to a place that we feel is safe because we're worried about them harming themselves or hurting someone else and taking away the human right to liberty which is a big thing to do and then thinking about forced treatment and actually injecting or putting chemicals into someone that when they've said that they don't want those chemicals which is a very abusive practice i feel Mm -hmm. so untangling those two things would be really useful and then looking actually at what evidence do we have that the medication is useful and works what about the harm caused by medication we kind of need to look at all of those things before we say as a society we're happy to keep on going with forced treatments um and i'd say that the ills of forced treatments are kind of really huge so we need to minimize it as much as possible i like the idea of thinking about capacity because that means you can make what is seen as unwise choices if you're able to think through the consequences of your actions and and communicate them with some support I think one of the problems in the Mental Health Act is that if you have a mental disorder, inverted commas, of a sufficient nature or degree, so either past or present struggles with that, 
your decision can be taken away and assumed that you're not able to make that because your decision is seen as evidence of your illness or your lack of insight. And that's a horrible trap. I know when I came off medication, I was threatened with sectioning and I was currently working in the mental health system. I was doing pretty well, but I was really struggling because I was withdrawing from meds. But Mm -hmm. the nature of my so-called illness um, was so severe and my history was so severe that they could illegally have sectioned me because of that, not because I was a risk to myself, not because I was a risk to anyone else. Um, Mm -hmm. So my decision to come off medication was seen as it didn't matter what I decided because my views could be overridden because of this supposed illness that I apparently had. And And that's worrying. Mental health is one of the few areas where, you know, you don't necessarily always have the freedom to make, for want of a better word, unwise choices. You can, in other areas of health, you can make the choices that you want if you have cancer you can refuse treatment but mental health is exceptional in that regard Mm. and how great would it be if we could actually make advance um statements that were respected in law so if i said in my advance statements i never want to go on antipsychotics and i never want an ect the only thing i'll accept is short-term benzos if i'm in a massive crisis if that would actually be enshrined in law and respected, that would be amazing if I made that while I had capacity. And then if for whatever reason I haven't slept for a week and I get really confused and really overwhelmed and people are very worried about me, they can take me into hospital if they think I'm going to jump off of something, but they can't give me antipsychotics. Um, I'd love that. This is Discussions in Tunbridge Wells from Canterbury Christchurch University. Topical comments, debate and interviews about well-being and mental health. And one of the things that she talked about uh, that she mentioned was the how traumatic some people find it, or a lot of people find it, uh, to experience medication by force, which is often part of what happens when somebody's sectioned. And I... I think that's one thing that we could possibly separate out. It's part of this kind of whole narrative that people are ill and need treatment that makes us, stops us, I think, asking questions that we could legitimately ask, like, um, is there a place for detaining people without necessarily medicating them? That's something I heard Peter Campbell, a very famous service user, say years ago, and it really struck me. And I I was amazed. I worked on um, inpatient wards myself at the time, and I had never even thought about it, and nor had most people I came across. And I think probably still nobody's even... Very few people actually consider that because in our minds they're all bound up with needing treatment. And actually, I think I agree with you, Rachel. There are times probably where people need to be kept safe because you know they're in a state of mind for whatever reason that's not their usual one and are a risk to themselves or maybe possibly even to others. But I do think that's, that's a very different narrative from they are ill and need treatment and it has very different implications. Uh, absolutely, and I think that's very much following off what I was saying earlier about that um, treatment within the Mental Health Act is actually defined as not just medical Medication, that the um, not just psychological treatment, which I guess we could see as being an active thing that you're doing with the with the um, person who's detained, 
but also the nursing milieu so just the very fact of being there is part of the treatment so it, it would actually be legal to detain somebody on no medication with as i understand it with the nursing milieu as the treatment yes i think it's, but it possibly is legal but in the current culture it doesn't happen absolutely and also the culture affects the nursing milieu as yeah. you call it in the sense that people see themselves as there to look after people with illnesses and often to insist that they take their medication it doesn't often happen that the treatment mm-hmm. plan doesn't include medication so you've got to take into account the context can, can, sorry, from the other's perspective having spoken at length to my psychiatric colleagues about this because I am very concerned about people being medicated against their will the, the other side of it that they would say which you know I have mixed views about is for them it's unethical to leave somebody very very distressed when there is treatment that would help them and perhaps they're not in the state of mind to make that decision so therefore for them they need to force medication to reduce that distress I, I think that there's a lot of downsides of that and personally working in services I think a lot more could be done to take time to listen to people who are in hospital and hear their experiences hear their worries hear why they don't want to take medication and think about that together to get more shared understandings but I think that people that are enforcing medication aren't doing it with bad intention no I completely agree they're doing it with the best intention and actually I find that very scary Uh, one of the things you linked to on the show notes John was a piece from the Guardian written by a nurse about Mm. why she has to you know the hero that she called her her colleagues heroes um, for looking after real people and as she talks about a an episode where they force medicated somebody and it really chilled me her kind of complete lack of questioning and her sureness that what they were doing was the right thing because of this idea that this person was ill and needed treatment like you said Um, and I think and she described the patient uttering what I think what she called a primal scream of fear which I you know made me shudder reading it uh, it's horrible, you know, and, and I, I've talked to somebody who describes being forced medicated and talks about it as like rape, he calls it brain rape, but he says it's worse than rape because uh, with the chemical rape, as he calls it, it goes, the chemical goes into every cell in your body. So uh, it, it's the kind of conversation we don't have often as mental health workers, and I think we need to listen. Is, is there is an bravery in that, though? I mean, I, I we all read that piece, I think, but... It seemed to me that the person writing it, who I think was anonymous, when it was anonymously, I think, a nurse, a nurse, is there not a bravery in that of saying that there is a really very nasty, necessary job to be done, and somebody ultimately has to soak up those things for us as a society? Not, not for me, no, because I think you know, you're perpetrating something that potentially is going to leave a very long shadow. Mm. And that person is going to have difficulty trusting mental health professionals from then on. And that's going to have profound repercussions for their care from that moment on. And I do agree with Rachel that, you know, there's just not enough attention to to trying to engage people in other ways before medication is forced, perhaps. perhaps. Well, perhaps this might be a good moment to hear from Raza Griffiths, actually, who's a colleague of ours um, here, a great friend to the Salomon Centre, actually gets involved in all sorts of things. And he, I think the interview that we did with him is very much in that, in that territory of the, the notion of, of 
having compulsion and certain things available to you, cutting off your options. Now, now one of the other interesting features of uh, Raza's interview is that actually I hadn't realised when I first approached him that he wasn't describing the experience of being formally detained but he was describing an experience which I've also seen in a number of occasions um, over the years where the kind of whether people how people mean it or not I'm not sure but if you like however it's come about the threat of detention is, is floating around in the background and certainly you know listening to Raza speak I almost you know, think he probably would have been better off under the formal powers of the, the Mental Health Act because things would have been a lot clearer. But let's go to that now. I'm here with uh, Raza Griffiths. Raza uh, is a writer and mental health activist and lecturer and, among other things, talks about personal uh, experience. Uh, should also add that he's currently in process of uh, writing or editing a black and minority ethnic manifesto for mental health. Yes, writing it, yes. Excellent. Uh, Raza, one of the reasons, uh, we obviously talked about this a little bit before, but one of the reasons I was particularly keen to talk to you was that I read something you wrote um, about the experience of compulsory treatment. I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about that. The the process of writing it or the actual experience? It's just the actual experience of, of the encounter with being treated mm. in a way that you perhaps didn't consent to or was imposed uh, upon you for whatever mm. reason. Well, there is a context to this, which is that... Uh, I, I was actually um, doing a PhD at the time and, um, you know, I was hearing voices. There were a lot of unresolved issues from, I think, from my childhood and early adulthood, which I'd never really faced. And these were intruding, you know, into my life. But um, I wanted to, I didn't really want to be in that kind of mental health service user category, you know, that mental category, because there was actually a a media campaign going on at the time, Mm -hmm. um, which was to stop the opening of a day centre for people with mental health issues in the community because it was being placed next to a school. This is where you lived. Yes, in in South London. So there was... a kind of reluctance on my part to kind of acknowledge that I was experiencing mental health issues, which made it difficult for me to kind of access help. So what happened basically was that it got to a real crisis stage and I rushed into my doctor's surgery and I collapsed on the floor. It probably looked a bit like I was having an epileptic fit, which was quite probably quite startling for my doctor. And then I would stand up and be very lucid and say, you know, I'm hearing voices And at the end of this, my doctor said, look, you really need to go to the hospital right now. So I was I was kind of rushed off to the hospital in a a taxi. Um, And at that point, um, um, someone appeared with a white wearing a white lab coat who was the on duty kind of psychiatrist, I imagine. They asked me about what I was experiencing. I, I told them that, you know, I was hearing voices and I was doing things that were probably putting my life in danger, actually. So I definitely needed some kind of containment and support there. But I felt very much as if there wasn't really any interest shown in the context of my life, the social issues, nothing about my background. I was simply seen as a set of symptoms behaving in a slightly odd way. And this person in a white coat was going to use some kind of psychological instruments to measure my degree of weirdness, as it were. And I didn't particularly feel 
that this person was very empathetic or understanding about me and so I was measured and then according to the DSM I was given various kind of labels you know which didn't really mean anything to me um, then I was put on this mental health inpatient ward and at some point I was medicated I wasn't really informed of my rights around medication there was no real uh, effort to educate me about potential side effects, no preparation, I was just medicated. And obviously being in that um, situation, I, it wasn't really on the tip of my tongue to ask and say, well, what are my rights and all, all of this. I, I just went along with it. But as a result of that medication, I had quite horrendous physical side effects, you know, and psychosomatic side effects. I, I felt as if I couldn't breathe. Um, I was hitting my bar, trying to put my head through through the bars and breathe, you know. Mm -hmm. And in the process of doing that, I, I basically sustained kind of bruising, you know, to my forehead. So it was, you know, I was hitting mm -hmm. my head pretty hard. Mm -hmm. And as a result of that, they then came and medicated me again with some injections in the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. So the whole process was, you know, I was in a state of distress and I was met with a kind of physically violent response and I was met with very little attempt to understand, you know, why was I behaving like this? I wasn't really treated like a human being. I was treated as a set of symptoms. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm wondering if that sense of kind of potentially be being dehumanised in, in the mental health system is is probably there more than many of us would perhaps care to admit many of us who have worked in it, it it can happen I guess for all sorts of reasons but but as well as that there also sounds like an ex, there's an experience in this that you weren't exactly consenting to what was was going on were you being treated under the mental health act or the mental capacity act at that point to this day I actually don't know, which is quite significant in itself. And I think I would I would really have valued having some kind of advocate or a social worker or someone just being there for me and just informing me of my rights. Mm -hmm. You know, and I don't I'm not even quite sure when my family the whole thing is a bit of a shrouded in fog, mm -hmm. to tell you the truth. And I would imagine that there are quite a few people who, who, you know, it's not that they necessarily didn't consent, although we know there are a lot of people who don't consent and they're still medicated, but some people just aren't really aware of their rights. I wonder if one of the issues that's perhaps going on here, I mean, one of the things that was in my mind to ask you was the notion of were you able to make a decision or had you made a decision and the decision was overridden? And I think the Mental Health Act comes into play when someone has perhaps made a decision, but that decision is formally over overridden in what's perceived to be their best interests. And in that way, that does then uh, raise an array of potential legal protections, you know, come into, uh, you know, come into play at that point. In some sense, you're... What you're describing is in some ways more distressing, actually, because it's kind of so unclear. There was no really. actual process that I was aware of mm -hmm. that was followed through. It was. Mm -hmm. It seemed quite arbitrary to me. Yes. In in some sense, I mean, you've talked about the fact that people really didn't see you in the round at all at this point. Were they well intentioned in that treatment? It's hard for me to comment on the motivations of the people you know, who were supposedly caring for me. But um, I, I, I certainly think 
that more effort should have been made to try and understand my context and to win my trust mm -hmm. and to have me more as a kind of, as far as possible, mm -hmm. more of a, a kind of consenting and active mm -hmm. agent, you know, in my own treatment. And, and, and absolutely no effort was made. I wasn't even asked, you know, what were you doing before you came here? Mm -hmm. There wasn't really any, any attempt at all. And I feel that I'm not... Uh, I don't want to be too ideological and say I'm totally mm -hmm. against, you know, a mm -hmm. compulsory treatment. But on the other hand, I think that there are risks, you know. We, we, mm -hmm. we kind of live in a very risk-averse culture and, you know, obviously organisations, they don't want to be taking risks mm -hmm. because the, it might blow up in their face. But what they don't factor in enough mm -hmm. is the risk of actually subjecting someone to compulsory mm -hmm. treatment. What are the long-term risks? How will they, mm -hmm. how might an experience of being compulsory treated affect mm -hmm. someone 5, 10, 15, 20 years later? And I can mm -hmm. relate something that really shows the power or, or the, the effect that that experience of being compulsory treated mm -hmm. had on me. So recently I, I, I basically read an extract from my diary in which I talk about that experience on the mental health inpatient ward of being subjected to violence, basically. And, I mean, at first it felt like a very liberating and almost cathartic experience to talk about it because here I was, you know, Raza Griffiths, me, 21 years later, talking about something which was I felt I felt deeply kind of ashamed and, and I was certainly very disempowered by this experience and here I was in front of an audience you know talking about it mm -hmm. but what happened after I left that conference was that basically uh, I, I just stopped breathing I literally I couldn't breathe I collapsed in the middle of a market in London um, I had very intense severe chest pains it almost felt a bit like a heart attack actually mm -hmm. and I put that down to the fact that the episode I was talking about when I was, you know, medicated without my consent on a mental health inpatient ward relates to a time in my life when I couldn't breathe. And 21 years later, mm -hmm. literally just talking about it, brought on that experience again. Mm -hmm. That is the power of the memory of those experiences, mm -hmm. you know. So, and also... That experience of being done unto rather than, you know, brought alongside and, you know, me as an active agent in my own treatment, it really made me very reluctant to engage with any form of support for decades afterwards. And, and, and I think that was not brought into the equation enough, I don't think. I mean, that's so interesting what you say and certainly having worked on acute mental health wards for a number of years it's incredibly resonant, the notion that people end up either formally or informally sort of slightly geeing or pushing people into particular treatments because they're afraid of the risks of not doing so, but sometimes just not sufficient, sufficiently balancing that against the potential other sets of risks and consequences for the person. So they're very focused, can, can end up for reasons of anxiety or other, I'm not saying that they're necessarily bad people, but can end up being very, very focused in the here and now and trying to avoid quite what they perceive to be quite an urgent risk, but then to an extent not really fully considering the, the longer term or even medium term actually outcomes of, of doing that, as I say, either formally or in your case, reading the account that you wrote, it felt actually that in some way you were being 
pushed or propelled towards the treatment without all of the protections of, of the law actually you were kind of being shoved towards it as it was being offered to you as being in your best interest and there didn't appear to be much of a feeling in you that you could say no. I mean I wanted to bring together a couple of things that you said uh, just to finish off which was you said that first of all that, that there probably might be some circumstances under which we perhaps as a society might need to sometimes treat people against their will but also you kind of be implying that a lot more can potentially be done. Could, could you say a bit more about that? If you really do need to treat somebody against their will, what, why would you have to do it? And what could we do to make that the least damaging experience? Well, well first of all, I, I, I actually find that maybe that's the wrong focus. I mean, mm-hmm. what I think we should be focusing on is rather than saying, well, under no circumstances, no compulsory treatment, you know, I think what we need to be focusing on is what are all the things that we can do to actually prevent it ever getting there. And I mean, there are there are actually mental health inpatient wards around the country where they're experimenting with not using compulsory treatment, you know. And I think a lot of the things that people need to, uh, professionals need to focus on are basically changing the professional culture and not having such because there's a lot of power invested in being able to compulsively treat people and i think in a way it may be quite difficult for professionals to kind of be almost give that up you know i think that's a huge loss of power and a lot of fear in not recoursing to those powers actually yeah but i think a lot of it is to do with relating to human beings and, and treat, treating people as human beings, basically, you know, within a mental health inpatient ward, it's just not really geared up in that way. And I think there needs to be a fundamental change in professional cultures so that we make mental health inpatient wards when people are at their most vulnerable to, to, to do every possible thing you can to not subject them to violence and a potential re-traumatisation. That was uh, Raza Griffiths um, just talking about the experience of being detained, but not formally, the threat of detention in the background. So, what, well, well, actually, he said that he wasn't sure if he'd been Well, that, that was the, there was the uncertainty, and I've certainly seen that in many, many people. Which, yeah, I, mean, I, I found it heartbreaking, quite mm. honestly. And, and what really stood out for me was that nobody took an interest in him as a person. And he was not informed of his rights, Mm. even. And that flags up a huge amount about mental health advocacy and what's happening there. Everybody's entitled to a mental health advocate, but clearly few people are getting them. If they're detained under the Mental Health Act. Okay, but but few people are getting them even in that context, I think. And that's really something that, that... that we need to call attention to. That's what I meant about Raza's interview in the sense that the experience sounded so traumatising and awful that it felt that there would have been a lot more clarity and it had actually the formal powers been, you know, the formal powers been in place and the safeguards because the Mental Health Act does come with safeguards built in you know into it in terms of reviews and tribunals and advocacy and advice and then he had none of that 
Although, as I understood it, he was talking about detention, uh, an admission 20 years ago, so before the 2007 amendment. 2007 amendment and also updated codes of practice, yeah. which come along every so often uh, with the Mental Health Act, I think. We can link to all of this stuff on our website, but the most recent one is in 2015, I think. Mm-hmm. Again, and these things are again putting in more safeguards. More. Well, and, and, and listening to Ray's interview, I was utterly shocked that somebody could be banged up for another six months because essentially because somebody didn't feel like doing the paperwork that might be necessary to letting her go out for a while. Now, I just don't think that's acceptable and I don't think it's something that we should be colluding with at all. Well, I didn't think it was the paperwork about letting her go out. It was the paperwork around um, the 5-2 or the 5-4 that... that Although, but she was saying in effect that she could have challenged this, and if somebody had been prepared to do the paperwork, then she, she, as I understood it, then she might not have been locked up for another six months. Well, it's the nearest relative. It was her parents being informed about the rights of the nearest relative. Well, again, it's an advocacy problem. I just don't think this stuff is acceptable. Um, I mean, I I, I guess funding is coming to mind because I think that that there are some excellent MHAs, but uh, the resources for them to be available to all patients. They they, legally they are available to all patients, but there is almost certainly a resource issue there. That, that's something we haven't talked about much is the ethics of this. One thing I was involved in some of the discussions around that led to the 2000 and uh, the, the amendments to the Mental Health Act and one of the things that we put forward that wasn't really taken into account I don't think was the need for the principle of reciprocity. In other words if we're going to take people's rights away we need to provide them with something in return, something good and adequate and I think in the current system we're not doing that. We can, you know, you, you can argue that you, we really, really are aren't giving people something back in return for taking away their rights. Well, I mean, in some ways, Matthew Debenham's interview actually was a response to a question I think I put to him from you, Rachel, about the notion that, you know, I mean, there's there's several issues here, aren't there? One is the way that the Mental Health Act itself is constituted and some of the provisions, I mean, one can question the underlying basis. There are safeguards and provisions within it as well. That may be different from the way that it's necessarily employed in all circumstances and I think the question you asked Rachel wasn't it was about the degree to which people stick around on the act because there simply aren't resources outside. So um, you know to go from 24 hour care if you want to call it that to nothing it's usually deemed to be too big a step so often people might if they've been in hospital a long time move to a kind of hostel or supported accommodation and often there aren't places available in those so people might be staying in hospital much longer than they need to be detained under the Mental Health Act when actually they shouldn't be because there's no no support for them in the community or not enough support, which is really shocking, I think. I, I suppose the other issue that's floating around in this discussion is the the degree to which, and it was one of the reasons for having this discussion in the first place, is that I know that we all sit in slightly different places about the degree to which that we we would get involved or not in you know the use of these powers. And actually, I'm still not totally clear, actually, Emma, from your uh, from your earlier answer, just what getting involved in taking up these powers actually adds to what you can you can do because you talked a lot about you know the importance of a therapeutic milieu and things I'm still feeling a little bit uncertain as to what uh, being able to have the responsible clinician status and some access to these powers adds into that for you I think I think it's something around um, 
uh, therapeutic risk-taking, which uh, you know many of our mm-hmm. psychiatric, psychiatric colleagues are able and willing to do, but bringing a, a psychological perspective on that in terms of attachment, formulation, and um, issues around power and control um, for the client group that I work with. What so people might be less controlled? Are you are you saying, or you're trying to down? Grade the amount of control that the system exerts. Exactly at the same at the same time as thinking about mm-hmm. how the um, control or safeguards that are put in place uh, um, acknowledge the psychological needs of the person. Because mm-hmm. in terms of thinking about treatment recommendations, also, you know, at the moment treatment does tend to mean medication in hospital. But I think as a psychologist, we'd be trying to think a lot more about the whole person and what has led them to Mm -hmm. feel very unsafe and in need of extra care and support and which kind of psychological treatments potentially or social interventions might be needed rather than perhaps enforcing medication. And I have to say, in in the inpatient learning disability services that I've been working in, that I've seen excellent practice. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've got to say, I, I wonder if I would necessarily claim that for psychology particularly, because I found the interview with the psychiatrist very resonant, actually. I mean, I will stick my hand up and say, I mean, I worked in, in acute inpatient mental health wards for seven years, and if I'd stayed around doing that job, I almost certainly would have trained in the same way that you're doing, Emma, and, and a lot of it was about this issue of try, of actually trying to keep people keep people's admissions shorter or really feeling that I'm not necessarily certainly because I was a psychologist but I felt that I would have something to offer to make the system as it existed work well, more well, humanely. I think it's important that psychiatrists aren't sort of split off here and, and made yeah. to be the bad guys in the system. I would be anxious that we are all working together and pitching towards something new and something different for all of us. I don't, I don't really think it's acceptable at the moment that, you know, that they're the sort of bogeyman in the equation. Absolutely. No. We're, we're all subject to the yeah. same external yeah. context, which at the moment, you know, with the cuts to services, mm-hmm. there are so few beds that often people are sectioned just because it's the only way they can get access mm-hmm. to a bed, and that's really it's sad. the only way to get access to a bed, but within that context of those cuts, I mean, I, I have very strong feelings about the funding of mental health services, that is not enough, but after all those years on wards, I do have, you know, really very ambivalent feelings about, you know, the notion of the cut, you know, the cuts on wards themselves, partly because I, I'm with him in that interview, which is that so many of the admissions that I saw would have been better served some somewhere else or that people were there because of risk and not only was there this issue of you know being you know really quite traumatized as Raza and Ray um, spoke about also what Matthew Debram spoke about was just this, this issue of people actually even though in any conscious way they may have really disliked being in hospital at the very minimum but also it, it being something that they ultimately became quite dependent on and we as a system were really eroding those skills for them as you know skills to hold and you know, to hold themselves and I, I wanted to think about you know getting involved in that in those powers because I felt I, I could perhaps inevitable. help some of those people in those positions particularly I think. yeah it's inevitable when people are in hospital for a long time that they're going to lose their their ordinary powers when they're subjected to a routine day in day out when they have no autonomy mm-hmm. you actually have no option but to become dependent that's the only way you can survive in that system but actually when you say lose those those skills i, I guess some of the people that i've seen who are impatient 
never had those skills in the first place. In, they didn't in the have population, the, you're they didn't have the opportunities yeah. to develop those skills. Mm-hmm. So actually, they yeah. are developing those skills as as inpatients. Yeah, I, I guess the population I've always worked with is adult mm-hmm. mental health, which is a different mm-hmm. ballgame. But yeah, there are, there are different considerations. I think. I mean, one thing it puts me in mind of a couple of other things before we finish that I think it would be that have kind of been touched on and would be really interesting to expand on. One is this this difference between you know the Mental Health Act and the Mental Capacity Act. The Mental Capacity Act being about you know if you have the capacity to make a decision, that that decision will be honoured if you have capacity, even if it's even if people hate it, even if it's perceived to be unwise. But that not applying under the Mental Health Act, which is grounded in this, you know, the ideas of soundness of mind, mental health, mental illness. So you can clearly have the capacity to refuse treatment or refuse hospitalisation or whatever it may be. But that ultimately can be overridden in what may be perceived to be the interest of treating you. Now, Anne, you came in with some very reluctant views on that and Angela you were suggesting what it would be would we be able to bear as a society not having the mental health act but actually only doing it in capacity how would we feel about that if we just let people make decisions in all circumstances even if we hated those decisions I think there's there's no argument for a mental health act personally I would just have a capacity act I, I think it would be better Yes, but but I have been, but I would have to say I, I still don't think I, I still think it would be very difficult. I, I've sat with professionals in meetings talking about capacity, and as soon as there's any doubt about somebody's capacity, people tend to err on the side of caution, which, which is obvious, I guess. But people can have very different opinions as to whether somebody has capacity or not so I still don't think you know everything would be perfect but it's a much better premise for beginning I think that there is a big role here for more thinking about advanced directives which I think mm-hmm. might be something that Ray touched on in her mm-hmm. so giving people a chance to talk um, about the kind of treatment they would like if they did have to go into hospital um, I think that we should be doing that a lot more and giving a lot of weight to those kind of documents which we're not doing currently mm-hmm. which would help it would help in the current context of while we have a mental health act that overrides capacity we would have other elements that we could bring in to that I mean I, I personally I mean, what, what do you think Emma? Um, would you go with I mean you, you, presume, you I'm guessing you probably have more um, experience of the Mental Capacity Act than yeah. the rest of us you also possibly Angela because you worked in older people's services mm-hmm. which due to the prevalence of um, dementias and organic problems the Capacity Act can come in more frequently but yeah. I actually think things are clear, clearer in the organic where, where things have an organic cause I think when um, we're talking about mental health conditions and they have a variable shifting course, establishing capacity is a much more difficult issue. The Mental Capacity Act currently doesn't have the safeguards that the Mental Health Act does in terms of advocacy and tribunals. And And actually, interestingly... It does have deprivation of liberty safeguards. Yes, but interestingly, that was um, in Matthew's interview, he seemed to be saying that he thought that 
we could work within the Mental Capacity Act without the Mental Health Act, apart from the issue about safeguards. But there's no reason why those safeguards couldn't be put in in for the Mental Capacity Act exactly. in a similar way in terms of tribunals and. You'd have, you'd have to be fit. You'd certainly have to be fit up. But he's certainly not the only psychiatrist. I mean, I don't know if this is necessarily common, but a psychiatrist colleague who I think has been willing to you know think about that. I mean, I have to say, I think while I find the idea appealing, I think we might struggle as a society with allowing people the liberty to make decisions that we really find hard to tolerate. Um, I, I do think there might be, and, and of course, the part of the history of mental health legislation is, is a kind of swinging pendulum between personal rights and our, our need as a, a wider group to, to you know to exercise you know to exercise control. I, I personally think we might struggle with it. I wonder if it would be more realistic to think about some of those other count you know some of those other giving more weight in the interim to some of those other counterweights as Rachel says but also also one of the other things that we've only touched on this absolutely fleetingly is I'm thinking of you particularly here Rachel you worked um, for a number of years in secure services and that's also somewhere where the Mental Health Act operates in the sense that rather than just simply being sent to prison you can be sent you can be detained under a section of the Mental Health Act and you know held in a, in a different way is that is that a good way is that is that a good way to deal with is that a better way than prison or are there better ways again in when we're in a, a sense of you know public safety I think it's a messy issue because um, for some of the people I worked with many of them their offending behavior was very clearly linked to what you might call mental distress mental illness for others it was a lot more messy picture I don't think there's this mad bad sort of discrepancy and it's and it's very very messy and often people ended up being in hospital for long periods when actually they perhaps weren't unwell, if you want to use that term, but they were perhaps risky in terms of if they were to be released from hospital, they might be violent or whatever, but that wasn't necess- that wasn't in relation to their mental health as such, but because they had had a mental illness at some point and they'd gone down the hospital route, they were kind of being kept in hospital for a long time, which was not ideal for anybody really. Uh, what do other people think? I mean, I'm aware that the discussion up to this point has sort of, I guess, been grounded a wee bit in risk to self. You know, we've been talking about mm. things like suicide, but what about where the risk is? You know, the risk is to the wider social group. I think that there's a um, an idea generally that being sent to hospital is the soft option, whereas actually I think it can often be a lot worse for people than being in hospital. For example, you don't know when you're going to get out. Do you mean depends. worse than being in prison? Sorry, sorry. prison, yeah. yes, sorry. Um, interesting Freudian slip there. You don't know when you're going to get out. You have to, you're have you often required or even forced to take medication. So I think it's far from being the easy option often. And another thing that we haven't really talked about, which is quite controversial, I would say, which came in with the 2007 amendment, is the introduction of community treatment Mm. orders. Mm. So now, as well as sort of being forced to have treatment in hospital, I think the idea was that it would reduce people's lengths of admission, which is a positive thing. But the idea is now that you can be forced to, to have treatment when you've left hospital, and that if you don't take your medication or if you don't attend certain appointments, etc., then you will be recalled to hospital. There's something we haven't mentioned at all as well is the Human Rights Act mm-hmm. and how the, that impinges on all of this. And as I understand it, the Human Rights Act, in a sense, trumps all the other acts yeah. we've spoken about. And when we Brexit, Theresa May has made it clear she wants to tear up the Human Rights Act. And that 
potentially causes a lot of problems um, because we don't yet know what will replace it or what we, you know, there is some talk of a British Bill of Rights. Until such time as we know what might be in that, we are in very murky waters with all of this. I, mean, I suppose a couple of things about that. I mean, I, I, I gather that there's been a lot of passion ex- expended on the human rights act and it certainly when Michael Gove was just the secretary it was it was on the docket at that point from what I have read there are those who know seems that there are some concerns with the way human European human rights legislation was incorporated into British law and it is apparently worth a rethink or worth a, a it seems to have got fogged up in all the discourse around Brexit and foreigners and our laws and things but I gather there are appropriate ways of going about appropriate ways of going about this and improving the legal position as it stands I can add, chuck in a piece by Joshua Rosenberg, you know, the BBC legal guy in The Guardian which sort of walks through some of the issues about this with perhaps some less heat than we've had but it, it, it is a really important point as to how you know the basis on which we may deprive people of liberty can stack up in relation to other other laws and again I think it's something about this tension between our social control and, and, and where we value liberty. You mentioned the Prime Minister. I think we're going to have to end in a minute, but one of the things I wanted to try and end on with you today was, okay, Theresa May said that she, you know, she'll tear, you know, tear up the mental health act. It's one of the very few things that she will talk about specifically at all during the election campaign, so I think it's, it's probably behoves us to pay attention. Now, one of the pieces that we'll link to was uh, a piece by um, is Mark Brown in, in The Guardian, where he, uh, you know, the specifics are light, but he says, well, this is what Theresa May should replace it with. But each of you, now, Prime Ministers are busy people, so, but if Theresa May is elected. If Theresa May is elected, then it's still Prime Minister on June the 9th, and you each had you know thirty seconds to make your pitch to her. What would you say, Rachel? I would say that we need to make. I I don't really have a strong opinion on the mental health act. I think maybe we should keep it, but I think that we need to make um, inpatient environments much more therapeutic. We need to have much more space for talking to people, hearing about their perspectives. We need to have advanced directives, and we need to have much more investment in community mental health services. For example, open dialogue um, would be my argument. Okay. Um, I would say. Please tear it up by all means. It is clearly not fit for purpose. I'd like to see it replaced with something based on capacity. But I also want attention paid to the Human Rights Act, which is currently enshrined in European law. If that gets translated into a British Bill of Rights, I hope it is something equally as rigorous and protective. Right, well, I'm guessing that she will. She might be able to listen to that, having been Home Secretary for all those years. You know, you're talking the language of human rights and law and justice. So, and uh, Mrs. May claims to be very keen on evidence. I would go with the evidence that inpatient wards, as currently constituted, are often unhelpful, and we badly need alternatives. We need a non-medical crisis house in every town, yeah, yeah. so that you know when people are compelled to uh, be held against their will, it can be somewhere that's helpful. Mm-hmm also have legislation based on capacity rather than a notion of mental illness and thirdly have legally enforceable advanced decisions as we have in physical health. Okay, Emma. 
Mrs May, it is extremely important that you understand that when someone has a mental health issue, this is not an illness in isolation from their socioeconomic environment. The more your government makes cuts to social services, education and other services which protect the most vulnerable in our society, the more we will see people develop significant mental health problems. When when the mental health act is used to detain someone, it is because services were not able to offer the right help in the right way. The cuts in frontline services must be reversed if the need for admissions is to be reduced. Okay, right. And what about you, John? What about me? I think I'm a little bit more, a little bit more prosaic. I think it's kind of easy to ask. I think it's easy to ask for more money to be spent. I think it's easy to ask for therapeutic environments to be better. I think that the big underlying tension here is this thing I've said about social control versus liberty. And I would like to see somebody who really cares about liberty put into the Department of Health as a kind of counterweight to the to the other pressures, which are not just about the Tories, but were there with Labour, they're there through society. Mm-hmm. So I would have David Davis, the Brexit minister, transferred health, pull him out of Brexit, somebody else can do that. I disagree with him in many things, but he really does, I think, genuinely care about civil liberties to the point where a number of years ago he even resigned his seat over the issue. So bring in Monsieur Null into the Department of Health. That's what I would that's what I would do. Okay, I think we're gonna to have to stop there. So thank you everyone. Best way to follow the podcast is to subscribe. You can do that on iTunes by searching for discussions in Tunbridge Wells. You can also find links to some of the things we've talked about on our blog, Discursive of Tunbridge Wells. As well as that, you can follow us on Twitter at CCCUAPPSY and on Facebook if you look for Canterbury Christchurch University Applied Psychology. I'll also post links to the Twitter feeds and other resources of our speakers and interviewees insofar as I have them on that. So all that really means to be done for me to do is to say thanks to all our contributors. I know this is a really very difficult and emotional topic for many people and I'm particularly grateful to Ray and Raza especially for being able to talk about it. Um, Thanks also to you for listening. We're not quite sure when we'll be able to put another one of these together and be back but hopefully soon. Thank you.